Okay, let's go ahead and get started. How are you guys doing today? Last session. <laughs> hey, how's it going? <laughs> I was like, it's familiar over there. <laughs> um, all right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, thank you so much uh, for this Sunday. I pray, God, that you would just help us to finish this series strong. Um, thank you so much that we were able to get through so much material, and I just pray that uh, you would just help us to take what we've learned and apply it to our lives and apply it to the church. Um, I pray, God, that it's a great service today and that we'd have great fellowship and just uh, that we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So um, a number of you guys already said that you saw the email from Sue. Um, and uh, if you were able to read the handout, I give you major props. It was really long, and I do apologize for that. Uh, there was just a lot that I just wasn't able to get into in class. I think all things considered, we got through a lot in, in nine sessions. Um, if uh, we had had even more discussion, it would have probably I would have had been an even longer handout. So um, that was really good. Um, but where we kind of I'm going to end today is just the postmodern church. So it's the kind of the last era, um, which has not been going on for very long, um, and it's kind of a cool time period, if you think about it, we are really kind of living in kind of a transition phase um, from uh, one major era of church history into another. And a lot of people will be like, well, how can you say that when, you know, it's like happening right now? I mean, there is some truth that, you know, history is generally speaking written down the line. But I really, most most church historians, most historians in general will agree with me. I don't think that, you know, three, four hundred years from now, uh, people are really going to look at it as not being a transition era. We really have left the modern age in many respects and are entering into the postmodern age. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person in every single tiny village across the country is super impacted by postmodernism directly. But what it does mean is that postmodernism is really becoming the philosophy sort of of the intellectual world, not just in America, but especially in Europe uh, and really all over the country. And that is having a major effect on the way people uh, see things, uh, the way the church functions, the way the church sees itself, so on and so forth. So in that respect, it's a very challenging time because we're going to talk about some of the reasons why it's so challenging. But, you know, to be in an, a phase where, you know, where we need reform, uh, where we, you know, it, the church is um, under a lot of spiritual attack is an exciting thing. We should look at it the way that the reformers looked at it, things in their day, is we have a great opportunity to be used by God to really impact things uh, for the better. But if we get complacent, if we get lazy, if we get apathetic, things uh, could potentially only get worse. And we saw that in the Middle Ages. If you have this mentality that things can never get worse, no, they can progressively get worse and worse and worse, all right? Um, so with that, um, postmodernism, uh, 2000 A.D. to the present. Now, again, I will say as far as 2000 A.D. goes, that's very true. It's not like people woke up on 2000, uh, January 1st, 2000, and were like, okay, we've entered the postmodern age. Postmodernism, in a lot of respects, goes back to the late 1800s, okay? You have uh, modernism, which was uh, uh, going on fully fledged, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but you, behind the scenes, you have philosophers that are really talking about things that eventually became postmodernism. And postmodernism really exploded onto the scene, all right, in the kind of late 60s with the sort of sex and drug revolution. A lot of times people think, oh, that's not that big a deal. It's just a bunch of hippies, you know, with their flowers and their peace signs and all that. Actually had a huge historical impact because Philosophers will do their thing, right? Philosophers will be in their ivory tower and they'll be writing their stuff and writing their books and they will talk to each other and have their conventions, but it doesn't make much of an impact unless what happens? Yeah, it's, it's got to get down to the common people. 
It's, it's, it's gotta get down to the popular level, and then that philosophy can be preached, uh, it can be expounded, it can be spread. And that is what we saw happen, alright, in the late 1960s with the real shift from a sort of a, kind of an Americana way of looking at things into a very secular, postmodern way of looking at things. And not everything about postmodernism is bad. I'm gonna talk about that. For the most part, it's dangerous. It's something as Christians we should be aware of. It's not a positive thing overall. But that doesn't mean we wanna take and just sweep everything under the rug, all right? This era brought about a lot of good change in America and throughout the world, especially in the area of prejudice, something that I talked a lot about in my handout, all right? The, um, uh, the sort of hippie generation did a lot to really challenge sort of American sort of white supremacist culture. Does that make sense? Which did not just exist, we tend to think of it just like in the KKK kind of off to the side. There was a sense in which sort of a white uh, a supremacist viewpoint was permeated our, our society really up until you get to about kind of the early mid-70s. And we have to give credit where credit is due. That generation did a lot to challenge that and even the church grappled with that and made a lot of improvements because of that. All right, I'm going to talk about in a minute, modernism tended to be kind of stuffy. All right, not so much modernism, but more the modern age. It just tended to be a very kind of stuffy, rigid time period. All right, and postmodernism in a lot of ways kind of told people you need to relax a little bit. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that there's, there's, uh, you know, a lot of churches, a lot of churches can be very rigid, so on and so forth, right? Um, obviously I'm a little biased. I grew up in the Bay Area. Okay, I can be relaxed on certain things to a fault. Um, but, you know, I think that there is a sense in which we can chill out a little bit. And postmodernism, uh, kind of helped America and Western culture do that, all right? Um, that's kind of where the positives for me at least will probably end. I'll talk more about the, the negatives in a minute. Uh, let me go over how postmodernism kind of developed, all right? So if you guys remember, the era before this is known as the modern age. And this age really applies to kind of history in general, but it also applies to the church. We can talk about uh, uh, the modern age church, or really the church during the modern age, all right? The modern age was given birth because of the Reformation. The Reformation changed a lot of things, did a lot of amazing things. But one of the things that we talked about um, in, uh, I believe it was last week, maybe the week before, no, it was last week, um, is the fact that universal education really just was like a 180 as far as like the development of sort of world progress, all right? And that eventually gave birth to the scientific revolution and that eventually gave birth to the enlightenment. And those things had a radical, radical impact on Western civilization. And those things trickled down into the rest of the world. The rest of the world was impacted um, by the fact that the Western civilization was sort of kind of in control of things, largely because of colonization, all right? Let me give you just an example of sort of how much people's paradigm shifted with the scientific revolution, all right? Just a quick example. If we heard a really loud boom, it almost, maybe not like an explosion, but loud, and we, we, it just sounded off and kind of weird and strange, we didn't really know what it is, and it sounded like it came from a few uh, rooms over, what automatically would we probably ascribe that to in this room? Like, what would you say are some possibilities of maybe something that happened? What's that? Guns, okay? Some kind of explosion. Bomb, okay? Maybe somebody was lighting off some late fireworks. I don't know, all right? What do you notice about every single one of those explanations? Right off the bat, it comes to your head automatically. What, what do you, does anybody notice anything about those? Okay, yeah, all right. They're all natural explanations. Do you guys notice that? They're all natural explanations. In the Middle Ages, if you were sitting in church and you heard a boom a ways away, how might you automatically describe that? You might give a natural explanation, but it would automatically be everyone's first inclination. No, 
All right? It might be what? Give me some examples. It might be a demon. It might be an angel. It might just be directly the hand of God. All right? It could be any number of things, but it would be much more of a mixture of natural and supernatural explanations. And think of how significant that is. I asked that question in a what? What are we right now? A church. Do we believe in the supernatural? Yes. All right? Uh, now, again, obviously, we've learned, all right, that you don't want to attribute everything under the sun always to supernatural causes. That's dangerous, all right? And certainly, as Presbyterians, we're more cautious than others. But I used to do the same experiment when I worked at a Pentecostal school with Pentecostal students, all right, who were raised to think very in supernatural terms from the time they were very young. Oftentimes, their theology could be very hazy, but the one thing where they were not hazy on is that the supernatural is what? Real, alright? There were, there was no grayness amongst Pentecostals on that point, alright? And I would always, 100% of the time, get the same explanations. Always the first inclination of modern man is go, to go towards a natural explanation. Whereas the medieval man, it might be a natural, supernatural, or some mixture thereof. It might be like, you know, some, you know, explosion of some type, but you would still automatically want to say there was something behind that. Even, you know, I mean, obviously we would believe that God is in some sense providentially behind everything, but they would want to say, what was behind that in a more immediate sense? They would want an explanation. And oftentimes they would force explanations, but it was a big difference, all right? Does everyone understand kind of that, that paradigm shift, all right, that really took place with this scientific uh, uh, revolution, all right? So, modern age emphasized things like rules, structure, hierarchy, Okay, it could be kind of uh, rigid. Um, education. Science. Logic. Rationality. Okay, these were the things that were heavily, heavily pushed by the modern age. Right? In the scientific revolution, largely uh, uh, as far as like math, science, those types of things. And then in the Enlightenment, these things were applied to philosophy. And as you can see, there's not a lot of room for the supernatural in all of this, all right? I mean, again, you could certainly say the supernatural is logical and rational, and we can defend that with apologetics. But it's not really emphasized by these things. And so that's what happened with the Enlightenment. As more and more of these things were pushed with philosophy, it began to be seen, why do we need the supernatural at all? I mean, why does it, what, what explanatory power does that have? And that was sort of the theme of the Enlightenment. And there was that challenge, uh, that, that sort of, you know, bumping of heads between the church and Enlightenment thought, especially in Western Europe, right? Now, towards the end of the 1800s, <clears throat> late 1800s, you have this movement known as modernism. Sometimes people will equate Modernism in the modern age, all right, and that's not exactly correct, all right. They're pretty close. The modern modernism was sort of the culmination of modern age thought, all right. It was sort of trying to bring it and apply it to things that it hadn't been applied to before. Modernism basically said, look, we still want to be modern people. We basically believe in the Enlightenment way of thinking, but we believe that this rigidity is kind of bad. Now, before this, you did have some challenges, all right, to modern age thought, all right, with um, Romanticism and Existentialism in the 1800s. But those were primarily philosophies that were kind of diametrically opposed to modernism. And they had their popularity, they had their heyday, usually would be popular amongst younger people, like in college and stuff like that, and then they kind of tended to die out. Modernism was saying, look, we still want to be part of the modern age, but we want to apply these things more, all right, to things like religion, 
to things like arts, all right, and those types of things, where people were really starting to kind of push those things to the side. Or, at the very least, art tended to be, you know, you had to do it very, in this very strict uh, uh, kind of way, heavy rules, stuff like that, right? So modernism started to emphasize more things like ab uh, abstract art, all right, and saying that the supernatural, the re religion is good, it's positive, man needs religion, man needs emotion, but we still want to stick with all this stuff to some extent. We still want to stick with the modern age, right? And that's why you had such uh, uh, fertile soil for liberal Protestantism, all right? That was why they were basically saying, look, we want to bring religion back. And religion started to become a lot more popular in America. It started to kind of go downhill after the Civil War. A lot of people were really angry with the church because the church, to a large uh, extent, I talked about this in my handout, was responsible for the Civil War. We might not like that. We might not want to, well, no, that's not really true, but I hope you guys read at least that part in the handout. The church really played a, a role in the Civil War, and the fact that the Northern Church and the Southern Church could not agree on how to deal with the problem of slavery in large measure led to the Civil War. So people were very angry with the church, and a lot of people were leaving the church, questioning the church, so on and so forth. By the time you get to 1900, a lot of people are saying, we want religion back. We want to go back to the church, but we don't want to go back to old school, stuffy, sort of, um, you know, archaic orthodoxy. All right. And so modernism, okay, came on the scene. All right. Brought religion back, really emphasized arts and music and all that stuff, but still said we want to be part of the modern age. All right. So it was, that's what gave liberal Protestantism sort of its, uh, its fertile soil. All right. That you could be religious, but you could still be modern. All right. And all doctrines, all right, from the, from the Bible really were kind of, you get to choose. You get to choose. How Does this apply to your life? Does the Trinity apply to you? Great. Believe the Trinity. Does the atonement apply to you? Believe in the atonement. Do miracles apply to you? Do angels apply to you? Great. Believe in those things, but don't try to impose them on anybody else. All right. If somebody doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, that's fine. All right. It's only if it makes a, a, a difference to you. The only things that we can impose on other people that everybody has to agree on is all this stuff. Does that make sense? All right. That was the stuff that everyone had to agree on. All right. <clears throat> behind the scenes, all right, behind the scenes and all this modernism, all right, is you have the beginning stages, okay, of what's called postmodernism. Postmodernism was rejecting not just modernism. It might sound like that because it's called postmodernism, all right? But in many respects, it was rejecting what? Not just postmodern, not just modernism, excuse me, but what? Okay? The entire modern age concept, all right? It basically said all this stuff is just a bunch of like, it's, it's kind of an illusion to some extent. Now that doesn't mean all postmodern people are against science, all right? I'm going to talk about this a little bit when I get into progressive Christianity. A lot of them will heavily emphasize science and education, so on and so forth, all right? And it, it's kind of this internal contradiction amongst a lot of postmodern people. But a lot of this other stuff really gets downplayed. Logic, rationality, structure, rules, hierarchy, all those different types of things, all right, are said to be bad and oppressive and negative, all right? I can't fully do justice to postmodernism in a class like this. I wish that I could. If I could sum up postmodernism in one word, all right, and it's much more complicated than this, and sometimes as conservative evangelicals, we don't do postmodernism justice. We sort of uh, talk about it in these sweeping broad terms. But if there is any one word, and this is legitimate, and I really do try to be fair to my opponents, if there's any one word we can use to describe postmodernism, what would it be? Does anybody know? Uh, that's pretty close. That's a really good guess, and it's connected, okay? Starts with an R. Any guesses? Okay. Relativism. Relativism. Relativism across the board. In ethics, 
in religion, in education, all those different types of things. Relativism, all right? Who can tell me what relativism is? Like, give me some kind of like a basic sort of sum up. Is anybody able to do that? Yeah, very good, okay? Truth really is what is true for you, all right? And not necessarily what is true for others. And a lot of times as conservative evangelicals, we'll focus on that heavily as the individual. Postmodernists won't just focus on the individual, although they will say at the end of the day, truth really is what is true for you and is not necessarily true for others. But they'll also focus on communities, on groups, on villages, on countries, on nations, all right? All right? They'll even say, you could even talk about humankind kind of has an ethic, but, you know, it might change in 500 years. Or we might discover uh, aliens from other planets, and they have a totally different ethic, which is perfectly legitimate as well. Does that make sense? All right, so it's really kind of what you make of it, all right? And heavily connected to that is what, what uh, was said over here, is that it's very connected to emotions, all right? Um, it's very subjective. It's really about how you feel about something, how you apply a given uh, decision in uh, any moment of your life, all right? So again... <clears throat> As you can see, the denial of objective truth is a big problem, not just for the church, but it's a big problem for society. How do we decide on laws? How do we decide on, decide on cultural norms? It's all just relative. And basically what postmodernists say is that pretty much every society, every culture kind of just has to decide for themselves. All right? It's basically kind of like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of collective wisdom, but it can change, it can shift, and there is no real absolute truth. All right? And therefore, that's another thing that they're really uh, into talking about, okay, is that there is no such thing as a meta-narrative. They love to talk about narrative, okay? Narrative, 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 all right? Narrative is the way you explain the world. It's your worldview, all right? It's the way you or your family or your culture or your village or your tribe or your, your country all right, or your church, your religion, it's the way you describe everything in a broad sense. And they say there's nothing wrong with that. They said it's very helpful. That's very practical, all right? You guys see everything is, is pragmatic in postmodernism. It's all about what, what? What works. Thank you, exactly. What works, all right? And so if that works for your culture, great. I hope you guys are already starting to see the internal contradictions here, because as soon as you say what works for your culture, you're automatically saying, well, you can define the very definition of works, like, like as in what is, what is practical. You're right there, you're, you're actually going to absolute truth. Does that make sense? Alright, you're saying there's some standard which, by you can defend what works, alright? Usually they'll just say, well, it, it's what makes everybody the most happy, and, 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 and it leads to the best lives, alright? But again, and I'm not trying to sound overly extreme, and I'm not trying to be unfair to postmodernism, but that is so arbitrary, all right? Because, and I know that people overuse this example. We always use this just, just you know, kind of as a real hard punch in philosophical debate, but I'm going to use it, all right? I mean, to the Nazis, what worked for them, all right, was being superior to everybody else. It was ruling over everyone else. You really can't question that in postmodernism. Now, they'll come up with all kinds of you know, cockamamie, convoluted explanations as to why they don't actually mean that. But if you really press them, there's no real, this, well, it didn't work for the Jewish people. And I'm going, okay, yeah, so it didn't work for the Jewish people. But from the Nazis' perspective, according to your philosophy, that's what worked for them. You don't have the right to question that. All right, and they get very flustered and, you know, and usually result to very kind of emotive arguments. But that's ultimately what it breaks down to. So you can't really question the ethic of another culture. It's their ethic. If that's what works for them, that's what works for them. All right? <clears throat> exactly. It, it, and, and, and it sounds like a very simple argument, but the most 
popular postmodernists cannot answer it. They cannot answer. As soon as you say, there is no such thing as absolute truth, you've just asserted an absolute. Right there. Done. I mean, the, the entire philosophy just crumbles right there. And they will come up, they will write entire books trying to answer that, but at the end of the day, it doesn't work. It does not make a lot of sense. All right. Now, this philosophy sort of festered behind the scenes. Not a lot of people bought into it. Uh, the early 20th century was very, very into modernism. Very into modernism. That was the challenge of the church. That's what led to the fundamentalist modernist controversy. All right. This is mostly kind of ivory tower philosophers that most people did not take all that seriously. That all changed. All right. As I said, in the late 60s, okay, it was sort of the hippie movement. My students always thought it was hilarious. We're actually going to talk about the hippies in history class. They actually had a lot more historical impact than you realize. They really, really did. They really, really did. Um, all right. Kind of what happened post-World War II generation was that you had a lot of uh, wealth. You had a lot of affluence. I won't go into all the historical reasons why that took place. Uh, I'll leave that to research on your own. But basically, America was flooded with a lot of wealth. All right, And this led to a lot of people shifting from a very rural, more farming culture. All right, there was, It's not that there weren't people living in big cities before this, but it was not nearly as common All right, to a huge shift post-World War II to the vast majority of the country living in a farm uh, community, a rural community, moving into suburban city communities, all right? And a lot of people suffered through World War II, all right? And sort of the great generation. Most of them lived through the Great Depression. Most of them fought in World War II, okay, uh, or contributed heavily uh, um, uh, to the fight of World War II. So there was this real sense of we don't want our kids to go through what we went through. Does that make sense? All right. And you had all this money, you had all this safety in, in American culture because uh, of American military power that people really felt that that was very possible. Also, uh, really important, you might want to write this down, is vaccinations really started to come in their own. It's not that they weren't around before that, but I mean, uh, uh, infant mortality rates was not nearly the problem that it had been. All right. Throughout most of history, if you had six, seven, eight kids, how many of them would survive to adulthood? I mean, not a lot. It depended on where you lived in, in the world, but a lot of times only two, three, four if you were lucky, sometimes even less than that, all right? And even if you did survive to adulthood, all right, uh, uh, you could get a disease later on and, and that could be uh, the end of your life. It was a precarious time to live. All of a sudden, you had these huge advancements in healthcare, all right, especially in uh, the United States and Western Europe, all right, and so people were having a lot of kids, and those kids were surviving, generally speaking, to adulthood, all right? So people were living sort of in this bubble, all right? You've got suburbia, you've got all this money, you've got your kids uh, uh, um, living to adulthood. And again, I'm not trying to be overly harsh on that generation. It's called the great generation for a reason. They did a lot of really amazing things that we benefit from today. So please don't take this as overly negative. But I think almost any historian would agree, okay, that there was a sense, okay, where um, they kind of overly spoiled their kids for those reasons that I talked about, right? And that led, okay, kind of to the boomer generation. And again, I know there's plenty of boomers in here, so I'm not trying to be negative, all right? I'm just speaking as a historian. I hope you guys take everything I say with a grain of salt. Um, but the boomer generation, okay, a lot of them went to college. And it's not that a lot of what they were saying was not true or good. They were fighting against a lot of good things. They were fighting against a lot of racism that was still left in our country, a lot of sexism that was still left in our country, a lot of classism. The Vietnam War was 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 it, it's it, it's a difficult war to talk about um, from a historical and philosophical perspective. You can kind of defend it on the one hand because we were trying to fight against communism and we had prom 
promised the world that if any country tried to take over another, we would step in. And we did that with Korea. All right. But Vietnam, as most of you guys know, became a just an absolute historical mess. All right. So a lot of this generation was protesting uh, uh, things that were needed to be protested against. All right. But a lot of it went way too far. And basically it was almost anything American is what? Bad, suspect, all right? We need to move not just past the past generation, but there was a sense in which we need to move past America itself, all right? Most boomers, kind of like my parents, okay, who were definitely kind of old hippies back in the day, they kind of grow up and they move past that, all right? And they start to kind of go back to the religion of their childhood, which for most people was kind of a vague, hazy liberal Protestantism. Most of them start to become more and more patriotic, uh, start to see some of the kind of flaws in their thinking, all right? But nonetheless, most of them still have this idea, okay, uh, that what they were doing, okay, was very good and very positive, and a lot of that, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. But the important thing is a huge shift in our culture. We went from being a very religious nation, not saying that everyone it was good religion. In the 20th century, most people were liberal Protestant, Roman Catholic. There were still a lot of uh, evangelicals, but a lot of fundamentalists, a very problematic fundamentalism that started to develop, okay? So I'm not saying there was all good religion, all right, but I'm just saying, we went from being a very religious country to being a very secular country very, very quickly. Does that make sense? All right. Today, okay, the numbers of uh, people who don't claim any sort of religion at all would be about 25%, and that's growing. All right. It would probably be 30, 35% very, very soon. Amongst those who do claim some form of religion, it's mostly sort of non-practicing uh, Roman Catholic, liberal Protestant fundamentalists, okay, or people who claim some vague form of evangelicalism, all right? Those who actually, okay, practice their faith, all right, is, is, is a very low number. Some would say it's as low as 15, 20%. Some would say maybe as high as 25, 30, but that would be about the highest, all right? So you guys see that shift that took place, and a lot of this had to do with the hippie movement, okay, kind of joining with postmodern thought. <clears throat> and you see this in our culture. I saw this in my students as I talk about. I'm talking about these were religious kids, not always very theologically sound, okay, but we're talking about religious kids who believed in the supernatural. All right, we would tell them, we would uh, pound home to them the importance of absolute truth if they went to the school where I was teaching from the time they were in preschool. And yet still, by the time they got to high school, we would go on mission trips and you would watch the way they would uh, witness to others. And I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, they would witness in a very postmodern way and wouldn't even realize they were doing it. It was very much, well, you know, Jesus really works for me. Jesus has changed my life. And so, you know, I'm not all trying to, like, impose that on you. But, you know, like, I'm just telling you, you know, how much he's helped me. And I'd love to see him help you, too. All right. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be overly harsh. They were doing their best. But I'm telling you, that's never the way you see people witness in the Bible. It's just not. That's never the way you see people witness in the Bible. It's never, well, Jesus kind of works for me and is true for me, uh, but, you know, I want to be really careful. I'm kind of walking on eggshells to not overly offend. And again, I'm not saying we need to be jerks, all right? I evangelize all the time. We don't need to, you know, the second you meet a coworker, be like, and I've known Christians who are like this, and I don't really like it, all right? I'm just going to be honest, all right? It's not my way of evangelizing. Second, have you done your business with Jesus yet? And it's like, dude, okay, Chillax, all right? Or the people on the streets with their signs and their bullhorns, oh my goodness, not helpful, all right? So again, there is balance, all right? But we should never present the gospel as sort of this optional type thing, all right? Did you have a question? Well, Comment? Out, my, my nephew was 12 years old. He was walking out the streets of California with his buddy, and they were not doing anything wrong, but a little older woman, another lady, walking down the way, and uh, <clears throat> she got about 25 paces around behind him. Ha, 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 ha.
for years. <laughs> hey, maybe it works sometimes. But yeah, it's, it's an excellent point because, again, this younger generation, they're not generally going to be very responsive to that. You, you've got to get to know people. You've got to become friends. There does need to be that emotional connection, a large part because of the cultural climate. But again, we want to be careful to not present the gospel as some optional type of thing. We need to tell people, uh, you are under the wrath of God. How you describe that will depend on your relationship with the person, the exact words you use, all right? Um, but again, we need to explain that you are under the wrath of God, and you do need to repent uh, uh, um, and receive Christ uh, for salvation. It's not, and it's, and it, a lot of times you'll even see a, a much better versions of what I'm saying. You know, evangelists, okay, they'll preach, and they're not going to be sort of, you know, uh, quite on eggshells like I was describing. You're not going to be like, well, if it works for you, da, da. but you know, they'll oftentimes present it as receive Jesus because he will deliver you from, you know, your addiction or he'll, he'll fix your marriage or he'll make you the best coach that you can be or you'll be the best business person, so on and so forth. That might be a more sophisticated version, but it's really kind of the same version. All right. It's, you receive Jesus because Jesus will work for you. I promise you he'll work for you. All right. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is we receive Christ because he is God and we were meant to worship him. Now, does he work for us? Absolutely. I'm not saying that, but we have to put it sort of in the right order. We have to make uh, our, get our priorities straight. All right. Now, um, this built and built and built and built in America and in Western Europe until, like I said, you get to about 2000 AD and really postmodern. Modernism, all right, is the philosophy of our day. And what's really scary is most philosophies are pretty geographically limited in history. What makes that very different today? What makes it so easy for anybody to spread and inculcate their views to the internet, okay? And that's a big deal. That's not a small thing, all right? And I'm not trying to rack on the internet. The internet does a lot of good, all right? But people can spread their religion and they can spread their philosophies very, very easily because of the internet. Now, in our country, a lot of it has a lot to do with other things. The public education system, and I'm not saying, you know, it's a sin to have your kids in public school. I have my kids in public school, all right? But I think as Christians, we need to be very, very careful. Even somewhere in Utah, where people are very conservative, you need to be very, very careful. Ask your kids what they're learning. Talk to them about it. Say, you know what? That teacher said that. Does that jive with the Bible? And I oftentimes do that with my kids, and they're like, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Well, you should think about that, all right? And we're going to think about it right now, okay? All right? And so you have those conversations, all right? Because, again, a lot of people don't realize how much uh, postmodernism has penetrated. Uh, and, again, you, I hope you guys know me by now. I'm not a big conspiracy theorist guy and all that nonsense, right? But there is a real sense in which this philosophy is the philosophy of, of our governmental system to some extent, of the, of the, um, of the public education system. It's pushed in movies, TV, cartoons, even in ways you wouldn't even think, even ways you wouldn't notice. It's everywhere. It's pushed, it's pushed, it's pushed. What works for you is good for you. What works for me is good for me. Leave it at that, all right? And it's that, that, that mentality is diametrically opposed to biblical Christianity, all right? And so we have our work cut out for us, all right? So that is sort of kind of the, the milieu that the church finds itself in. Just like we talked about the church during the uh, uh, um, Enlightenment age or at the, <clears throat> the modern age, the Middle Ages, so on and so forth, the church in the Roman Empire, the milieu that the church finds itself in is going to have an effect on the church, and that's just that's just the way that it works, all right? Okay, uh, moving on, uh, I want to talk really quickly about um, kind of... Uh, sort of the first big heresy, okay, of the 21st century. There's a lot of others, but most of them were predate the, the 20th century. I want to spend a lot of time on this, but just really quick, okay? Um, you have what's known as, let me erase a little bit here, the NAR. Has anybody heard of the NAR? Okay, it's kind of sprouted off some of those um, heretical groups that I talked about in my handout, especially the... 
Yeah, I'm not not a fan. I'm gonna t- and I'm gonna explain why. Yeah, I'm gonna explain why. Uh, it's kind of sprouted off of the kind of counterfeit revival uh, uh, movement and the Word of Faith movement, and it's sort of kind of come to this new type of thing. All right, it was started by a guy by the name of Bill Johnson. There were plenty of others, okay, who contributed, but he would be kind of the first big leader. He's still around, still writing books um, in kind of the um, mid 1980s. All right, um, claimed to be a Pentecostal, and as I said in my handout. We have to have some balance here, you guys. you got Reformed people that, in my opinion, you can disagree with me, are way too harsh. And all Pentecostals are, it's all heresy, and they're all going to hell. And I, I, just, don't, I just don't agree with that. I just don't. And you, don't. you don't have to agree with me, fine, but I think that there are a lot of Bible-believing Orthodox Pentecostals out there. I disagree with their theology as a Reformed Christian, but I do not believe they cross any lines into absolute heresy, okay? All right, but then you have others, okay, who want to be so affirming of Pentecostalism. You've got a lot of groups over here who claim to be Pentecostal, who are not. They're heretical. And most Pentecostals recognize them as her- heretical as well. The Assemblies of God denomination, as much as Presbyterians we'd have disagreed with them, they have condemned a lot of these groups just as strongly as the PCA, if not more strongly. All right. So again, we have to sort of kind of do some sifting between Orthodox Pentecostals and those who claim to be Pentecostals, okay, but who are very much wolves in sheep's clothing. All right. Um, and so this is kind of what you have with this this movement, all right? Um, another big leader, okay, kind of more recent, is a guy by the name of Brian Simmons. And he is behind, okay, what is known as the Passion Translation. <clears throat> NAR stands for New Apostolic Reformation, all right? New Apostolic Reformation. The main heresy of this movement is it says that there are fully-fledged, bona fide apostles and prophets living today. I don't mean people who, some Pentecostals, even some Presbyterians, even some Reformed Christians, like John Piper, before we get a little too feisty as Christians, as Reformed Christians, excuse me, believe in similar things like this. And I'm, for one, I'm not ready to even come close to condemning John Piper as a heretic. I think Piper is an awesome Christian, an awesome theologian. I have my disagreements with him, all right? You have some Pentecostals and, and other evangelicals who will say people have the gift of prophecy or the gift of apostleship. I don't agree with that. So don't come after Sunday school and be like, what are you saying? Okay, I don't agree with that position. But I'm saying it's not heresy. What they believe is that you can, in a loose sense, call people apostles in the sense that they are church planters or that they um, sort of kind of have jurisdiction over large parts of the mission field. Does that make sense? All right. I think it's a stretch, but it's not heresy. All right. Um, you have people who say they have the gift of prophecy, meaning that they can speak words and that it comes from God in some sense, but they will say that it gets, it gets jumbled in the articulation. So they'll say it's not special revelation. It's not on the level of Scripture. You should not accept it as Scripture. You can accept it as, um, you know, uh, something that can maybe guide you, but you want to be really careful with prayer and, and always go back to Scripture. But it's sort of like, you know, guidance for Reformed Christians. If, if everything seems to be leading in a certain direction, oftentimes that might be God is, is, is calling us to something. Does that make sense? And they will say... On top of all that guidance, God might give you sort of a vague word. I find this to be very jumbled and confusing, and I don't agree with any of it, all right? Just to be clear. But it's not heresy. And it's very different from what the NAR is claiming. They are claiming that you have fully-fledged prophets and apostles on the level of, like, Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, so on and so forth, that have full authority. And if they come and tell you something, it's the word of the Lord. It is like Scripture. You better obey, all right? And that is going way, way too far, all right? And if you're like, well, yeah, I think that's bad and not good, but do they really abuse this authority? Yes, 
Absolutely. All the time, it's well documented, all right, where they will tell people that they need to sell their entire real estate business, all right, they need to, you know, uh, leave their spouse, they need to get their kids in a certain school that they can't afford, all kinds of things. They will tell them, and you have to listen just like Jesus Christ was telling you that himself, all right? That is very dangerous stuff that is really out there, and it kind of feeds off of, uh, uh, like I said, the sort of word of faith um, counterfeit revival movement, all right? Yes, sir, Mark. <clears throat> Um, I don't, I don't, but it's, it's hard to say because I don't think in America at least, but on the mission field, probably more so. In America, I would say, and, and really the emerging church has kind of vanished to some extent. It's really kind of morphed into the progressive Christian church, okay? So, um, progressive Christianity, I would say, is more of a danger to the American church. The NAR and sort of the word of faith counterfeit revival movements, I would say, are more of a danger on the mission field. Those are things that are really problematic in places like South America, Africa, and Asia. All right. Go ahead. Yes. Yep. Same guy. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Very, very problematic teacher. Very problematic teacher. All right. Really quick to go to kind of Mark and Walt's point. All right. If you go back to my handout. I talk about the age of missions. I, I hope you guys saw from my handout, if you read it, I'm very positive about the age of missions. And we should be positive about the age of missions. The age of missions was awesome. This is when Christianity first started to become global in fulfillment of Scripture. All right? I'm not going to say a lot more than that because I covered that in the handout. Having said that, though, all right, we need to understand that as the gospel spread, it spread into areas, okay, that were very, very difficult, all right, that, that had worldviews and religions that were diametrically opposed to biblical Christianity. Furthermore, a lot of missionaries were trying to be very cautious, and if, I talked about this in my hand, and allow the native cultures to keep as much of their culture as possible. Because you remember we talked about missionaries did not have a lot of success in the colonial period because they were trying to impose not just biblical Christianity, but sort of white Western European thought. Does that make sense? And it did not work very good. But in the 20th century, the missionaries had this challenge. They didn't want to make that same mistake, but you had people who had cultures all right, that had a very hard time uh, embracing a lot of what the Bible teaches. So you had a lot of uh, 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 groups all right, in South America, Africa, and Asia who still wanted to practice polygamy, all right, who oftentimes uh, engaged in very barbaric uh, practices like female circumcision, which is still a problem all right, in large parts of the Christian world. We tend to think it's just a Muslim problem. No, 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 no. It's a problem in the Orthodox Bible-believing churches <coughs> in uh, parts of the Middle, a Middle East okay, and Africa. Um, and really, wherever the gospel spread, because... Pentecostals, I'm talking about Orthodox Bible-believing ones, all right? Wherever they went, all right, the, the God, they did a very good job in the age of missions, and we need to give them credit, all right? But those other groups that I talked about, sort of word of faith, kind of counterfeit revival, they were always trailing right behind them. Does that make sense? Because if you go and you preach, and you say, look, we believe that miracles are still for today. We believe, okay, in things like the gift of prophecy, the gift of apostleship. To people who don't know a lot of the Bible and theology, those two groups don't sound that much different. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? To us, we can very clearly differentiate. But to a lot of people who are just coming to faith, it was very difficult, all right? And so you had a lot of word of faith, a lot of counterfeit uh, revival people, all right, right there wherever the gospel spread. And it's a big problem to this day, all right? Um, a lot of reformed people have done a lot of research talking about how uh, um, on the mission field, all right, um, this sort of quasi 
false Pentecostalism is one of the biggest problems uh, out there, all right, where you have churches, all right, where it's just in utter chaos, people barking, laughing, screaming, running around, um, all different kinds of things, and the focus is not on the Word of God. The focus is on sort of these ecstatic experiences, all right? And so the NAR is spreading rapidly right now, all right, and it's only adding to the already an already existing problem, okay? All right, state of the church today, number three. I'm going to go through these last ones pretty quickly. <clears throat> now, I understand a lot of people will just say, you're just biased, Dan. You're just biased. You're, you're, you're an old school conservative, confessional Presbyterian, and I'm not apologetic about that, all right? I, I am those things, all right? And they'll say, you just want everyone to be Reformed and Presbyterian. And on the one hand, I'll say, well, kind of, sort of, yeah, all right? Uh, um, but, but on the other hand, I understand that's not always going to happen, all right? And, and I certainly accept my brothers and sisters in Christ from other communities, all right? Having said that, I, I, I'm trying to be fair. I'm trying to be honest. I've been studying church history for 20 years now, all right? You don't have to agree with me. You can think I'm biased. I'm being too hard on the church, and that's fine. It's, it's an area where we can disagree. I'm just giving my, to some extent when you teach, you have to kind of give your take on things. Um, my opinion is that the church is not in a great state right now. There's a lot of things to rejoice over. There is. The church is growing. It's growing exponentially, and it's growing in areas where people never thought possible. Like I said, uh, um, um, very difficult parts of, of South America, Africa, India, China, um, uh, Southeast Asia, parts where people thought, there's so much antagonism, all right, that it would never be possible. The church, even in the Middle East, is growing faster than most Christians realize. Now, that's a very, very tough place, all right, to do mission work. Very difficult place. And the church is growing even there, all right? So, and we've seen a, as I talk about my handout, there's a resurgence of reform theology, all right, especially in the United States, uh, starting to spill out into the rest of the world. We should rejoice over these things. So I'm not trying to be Mr. Negative Pants, all right, it's all bad, it's all horrible. But if you want my assessment, where are we at in the church today? I don't think that we're in that great of a place. I just really don't, all right? I think it's not as bad as the time of the Reformation, but I don't think we're as far off as a lot of times we like to think we are. I think we like to try to think, oh, it's not that bad, because, again, we don't want to come to the realization, all right, that we have really serious problems to deal with, all right? I can't give every single example, but some of the similarities, okay, to the late medieval church, all right? Biblical ignorance, all right? Biblical, and this is, you can you can say that's just your opinion, all you want to me, but that's baloney, all right? They have done study after study after study after study, all right? And even Bible-believing Christians saved. I'm talking about people that are in otherwise good, decent churches by decent pastors who believe in biblical orthodoxy and biblical ignorance is at an all-time high. They did a recent study that only about 7% of the American people, all right? Now, mind you, the evangelical church, okay, makes up about anywhere, it depends on who you're talking to, about 15, 25% of the people, all right? And only 7% of the American population believes in, we're talking basic biblical doctrine. I'm, we're like basic things like inerrancy, uh, the deity of Christ, uh, um, uh, the existence of the supernatural, uh, the reality of hell. Really, I'm not talking about like superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism. I'm talking about really basic stuff. That I'm going to be honest with you, all right, uh, uh, my kids knew by the time they were like four or five years old, all right, and those were non-negotiable if you're going to claim to be a Christian in my home, all right? Uh, really basic stuff, 7%, all right? Less than half of the conservative evangelical church, all right, believes in really just bare minimum uh, biblical doctrine, all right? 
very much kind of a pragmatic uh, Christianity. A lot of it comes from this postmodernism, very similar to the medieval church, all right? It was all about meeting people's needs. Now, the medieval church's uh, answer to that was indulgences, all right? Uh, the, uh, the church today, a lot of that is a sort of feeding our egos, all right? Making you, uh, Jesus, like I said, is going to, uh, you know, give you your best life now. He's going to fix all your problems, so on and so forth, all right? But it's very similar. Uh, moral corruption. All right. And a lot of it can be kind of behind the scenes, but it's the same thing in the Middle Ages. All right. It's not like people, I mean, some parts did, like in Rome. All right. But most people did not flaunt their moral corruption. All right. But moral corruption has really gotten to be out of control in the church today. And you might be like, oh, it's always bad. No, that's, that's really not true. All right. 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Were there corrupt pastors? Absolutely. Did, did pastors have affairs and, and other types of things? Of course. All right, but was it as rampant as it was in the late Middle Ages with the monks and the priests, or as it is today? No, that's just that's historically false. And when people say that, it really frustrates me. All right, people had the utmost respect for pastors because even if you weren't a religious person, people felt that they could what? Yeah, trust you. In the 1800s in America, with all the problems of the church, slavery, and all this stuff, which I I really dealt with in my handout, I did not just brush that under the rug. Okay, nonetheless, all right, people trusted pastors. All right. People don't as much today, and for good reason, okay? Uh, they have done studies, legitimate studies, not just bogus ones trying to, like, by secular humanists trying to make the church look bad, okay? Um, uh, huge percentage, huge percentage of pastors are addicted to what? Does anybody know? Pornography. Pornography. Huge problem. Absolutely a problem. We've got, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of pastors, okay, also biblical ignorance amongst the clergy, okay, we're talking about with the Middle Ages, all right, most pastors have a very, very shallow theological understanding, all right, remember that dichotomy we talked about um, with the Middle Ages, where you have this really deep legalism on the one hand, but you also have this antinomianism on the other hand, that absolutely marks the church today, all right? Where you have antinomianism that you can, you know, believe in Jesus, you can live however you want, but then on the other hand, you'll have people who nitpick over things, okay, that really don't need to be nitpicked, all right? You know, uh, what, what kind of clothes you wear to, to church, right? You know, the exact type of music you listen to, all right? Every type of movie that you see. Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have some standards on those types of things, all right? But you have this sort of legalism on the one hand, all right, especially kind of in old southern kind of dispensational Christianity, and then you have this real antinomianism uh, on the other, all right? And then again, uh, uh, heresy and heterodoxy have become really, really big problems, just like in the late medieval church, all right? Um, go back to my handout, all right? There's a lot of heretical groups out there, but some of the ones that are having the biggest problem today are the ones that I talked about, the NAR, the Word of Faith movement, counterfeit uh, uh, revival movement, all right? And then I would say number four, progressive Christianity, all right? Mark brought this up a minute ago. Progressive Christianity really sprouted kind of out of the emergent church movement. What happened was, all right, you had sort of this um, movement that said the church needs to be a little bit more focused on, uh, you know, artwork and we need to be a little bit more relaxed and, and all these different types of things. So you started to see pastors, otherwise good pastors, orthodox pastors, okay, with, you know, cool hairstyles and they wore jeans and they drank a lot of coffee and they would turn the lights down and there'd be a lot of candles and like light shows during the worship service. Stuff that I wouldn't agree with as a reformed Christian, but wasn't like her heretical, okay? What happened was, okay, this sort of emergent church movement started to blend, all right, with uh, postmodern thought, 
all right, and the remnants of liberal Protestantism in our country, all right, and basically what progressive Christianity is today is a postmodernized version of liberal Protestantism. That's all it is, all right. You can talk about a lot of different things, but that's ultimately, if you break it down, that's what it is, all right, it is a uh, postmodernized version of liberal Protestantism. Liberal Protestantism, all right, was very tied into modernism. I ended up erasing it, okay, but very tied into modernism. The progressive Christianity has just taken the philosophy of the day and glommed it onto older theology, but it's the same type of thing, all right? Ultimately, in any form of liberal Protestantism, whether older versions or the version today, you get to choose what you want to believe out of the Bible and what you don't. That's the essence. If you want to believe a lot of orthodox things, fine, great, that's your choice. Believe in the resurrection, believe in the Trinity, believe in the deity of Christ, believe in justification by faith alone. But at the end of the day, you get to choose, all right? And so you'll have very, very liberal, all right, progressive Christians, all right? Very liberal, all right? Uh, John Dominic Cross would be an example of uh, 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 Crossan, excuse me, who believes in, uh, who rejects almost everything from Scripture, all right? Then you've got others like Rachel Held Evans who tend to be more orthodox in the sense that she believes in the Nicene Creed, so on and so forth, all right? Uh, uh, but again, uh, she uh, um, is very much tied into the LGBTQ um, agenda, um, very much tied into uh, uh, getting rid of any forms of complementarianism, and really just attacking any and all forms of sort of Bible-believing uh, Christianity, all right? So, as I answered Mark's question a little bit, I would say on the world stage, the world stage, the biggest problems are kind of those quasi-Pentecostal movements. They're really doing a lot of damage to the church. In America, I would say progressive Christianity is our biggest threat. I really, really believe that. And a lot of people are like, well, you're just biased. You wrote a book on it, blah, 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 blah. I wrote a book on it because I'm concerned, all right? Not because, like, I have an ax to grind, all right? I really saw this developing as a, as a teacher, all right, from about 2008 until the present, all right, where it kind of came out of nowhere and just became extremely popular. Go Go on to conservative evangelical blogs in our country today, and you will see very, very few followers. Really, you'll see very few. You go on to Rob Bell, Rachel Evans, um, uh, um, uh, Jen Hatmaker, uh, John Pavlovich, and they have hundreds and hundreds and legions of followers and comments. All right, Some of the people that are so popular right now, I didn't even put in my book, and my book was only published a year ago, because they weren't even that big a deal. In just one year, you've got people like Jen Hatmaker and John Pavlovich who are just extremely popular in uh, amongst professing Christians. And they deny almost anything and everything, all right? Pavlovich recently spoke at a Unitarian Universalist church, all right? That's kind of how much he sort of dumbed down things, all right? Uh, uh, Jen Hatmaker, she kind of has an opposite appeal. She tends to be really orthodox on most things, all right? But she has very much embraced the LGBTQ agenda, and a lot of younger professing evangelicals eat this stuff up. They love it. They absolutely just think this is like the new reformation of our day um, and, and they eat it up, all right? So I'm kind of running out of time real quick here. Number five, all right, the need for another reformation today. As I said, I know a lot of people will say, it's a bit much, Dan. You're, you're trying to over-romanticize the reformation. You know, you know, you and your ilk want to be the heroes of the day. It just, it just isn't the case, all right? I mean, I, I'm not saying it's quite as bad, all right? But I think that we're getting really close. And I don't think we need to wait for it to get quite as bad, all right, to push back, all right? I do believe that we need uh, a, a reformation today. And to go back to what I was saying about reform theology, yeah, I'm biased, all right? But I'm also biased for a reason. Not only do I believe I can defend those things from Scripture, all right? And I'm willing to, to debate anybody on those things. But also you look at historically. When was the church the strongest? All right? The late 1500s and throughout the 1600s. That's a historic fact. All right? The church was the strongest, the healthiest, all right? the most morally upstanding in that 150-year period. And it was because most 
churches, most professing Bible-believing churches, were reformed in their theology. I don't think that you can separate the two the way that people want, all right? And we've moved away from that. The church has become more and more Arminian, less and less reformed, all right, until today. We are very much the minority in the church, all right? And what do we see? We see all those things that I talked about. Biblical ignorance, moral corruption, even including in amongst the clergy, all right? So I absolutely do believe that we need another reformation today. Before I let you go, and I'll get your question one second. Before I let you guys go, sometimes people will be like, yeah, okay, I see your point. That's, wow, you make a good case, all right? But they'll say, but I'm not, I can't be like Martin Luther. I can't be like John Calvin. So, you know, what do you want me to do? All right. Make sure you remember the Reformation might have been led by those guys. All right. But those were just the leaders. All right. The Reformation happened because of lay Christians. Okay. Who had had enough and were pushing back and they wanted to see the church transformed and change. It happened. So this notion that it can't happen, I don't know how else to respond to people other than it did happen before, so why can't it happen today? All right? I just don't buy this that it could never happen again. That was like a one-time glorious thing. All right? Uh, it happened because late Christians were tired of what was going on. They pushed back, all right, and they made a huge difference. I understand we're not all called to be pastors, evangelists, uh, missionaries, theologians, all that stuff, but in your own way, in your own fashion, you can push back. Do it in love. Be careful to not always come off like the obnoxious Calvinist because we can come off that way sometimes, all right? Uh, but but do your best in your own way, in your own sphere, all right, to say, you know what? I love the church. I love Christians. But because I love the church and because I love Christians, I want to see things change. Things can be better, all right? Things can be more biblical. We've seen things be better in the past, and we can do that uh, today. And so, again, I really just I, I have a hard time with some of the excuse-making uh, uh, that gets made uh, today. It's happened in the past. There's no reason why it can't happen again, all right? All right, thank you, guys. I had to skip a lot of stuff, but I crammed in as much as I could these past nine sessions. I really had fun teaching this class. You guys are awesome, all right? Oh, I didn't get to that question. I'm so sorry. Can, can you just hold on real, real quick? What's that? Um, I don't. That's actually a good good suggestion. I would be willing to. Talk. I would want to do it myself. If 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 I think a lot of reformed leaders should get together and 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 come up with something by like to tell the laity like what are ways that you can get more involved. I, again, and I know this is going to sound like yet another evangelical reform uh, kind of soapbox, but I'll be honest with you. I mean, there there are things that we could do. All right, that would really get the world's attention. All right, make no mistake about it. All right, if we push back harder against something like abortion, we could absolutely make more strides. Most Christians, most Reformed people will say they're against abortion, but they don't do a whole lot. All right, if we started to really protest certain things, I guarantee you we would get people's attention. And more, if conservative evangelicals saw us leading that charge, all right, I think they'd be a lot more li willing to listen to us on other theological and other moral uh, uh, types of issues. All right, I think another big thing for me. If, if I were to say well, number one thing on my list is I, I just this overly pragmatic Christianity is a big problem. You know what I mean? That 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 Jesus exists for you. That's not biblical. We exist for Jesus, and that's what the Reformation was all about. We have it completely backwards, and if we can turn that around, make that upside down, I think right off the bat we'd see a lot of change in the church. Now we'd have a lot of other things to do, but we we'd, we'd see a lot of change. So those would be some of my big ones. But again. I think what you're suggesting would be something for not just an individual, but for like reform leaders to get together and really start to do this. But most don't. Most want to play the numbers game and they want the status quo and they just want to keep things as they are. And, and I, I, I don't think it's good. All right. But yeah, excellent question. Real quick, Neil. You talked about scripture, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, you got 66 books. Mm -hmm. Most people never read them. Yeah. And, uh, what I'm wondering is if there could be 
some sort of a, a concise summary of what the Bible is really saying. I've never seen it scroll and attempt at things like that, but I've never seen anything that really answered Sure. Questions. I think his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, gets close. You could maybe argue that maybe some of those doctrines he could have taken out, not because they're unimportant, but to make it a little bit more concise. Uh, but I agree with you. I think that uh, a lot of shorter catechisms and stuff were used in the Reformation period to help people get a, a good start on sort of biblical uh, theology. Absolutely. Yeah. Why don't we talk after class? Hey, thank you guys for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, you're welcome.